1: They were a dashing couple in their youth. Stan was handsome with black hair and she he was He was
2: tall, dark and handsome, and she was short and blonde.
1: <laughs> Five foot two, eyes of blue. Yeah. And, yeah. and they the you know, he was the local farmer, she was the local teacher. They got married at the old West Church. It was mm-hmm. kind of a classic romance. Um,
3: Elaine you know. always had a twinkle in her eye.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. She's they both had great <laughs> senses of humor. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
4: So what was what was the Fitch House, like, growing up? Like, what were some of your earliest memories? It was an active
1: dairy farm, so there were cows all around, and you could hear the compressor going in the milking house mm-hmm. night and day. and
2: uh, hear my father calling the cows to yeah. the barn at yeah. night. Yeah.
4: Did you all grow up helping out on the farm? No, we were we girls. We were
1: girls. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Daddy always um, read to us when we went to went to bed and um, or or he would make up stories and they would be you know serial <laughs> stories with a different episode every night and i can remember um, the, the the smell of him like cu- you know cuddling up to him <gasps> oh yeah, yes yeah. when he was when he was reading to us
2: well i remember crawling into their bed and he'd be out at the barn but you could smell the hay on his pillow <laughs> 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 mm-hmm. I'm Donna Fitch, and I am 70 years old, and I'm the oldest daughter of Stanley and Elaine Fitch. I'm Diane Fitch. I'm 68 years old.
3: I live um, in Callis, Vermont, in a little house across the road
1: from my parents. I'm Judy Fitch-Robert. I'm 63. I also live in Calais on land that was originally part of the family farm.
4: And I'm Michaela LaFrac. Stanley and Elaine Fitch, Donna, Diane, and Judy's parents, were married for 71 years. They lived their whole lives in the Callis farmhouse that Stanley grew up in. Their marriage had its flaws, but overall, it was strong and good. What did you learn about like partnership from from them from watching them? They were
1: Vermonters. <laughs> well, so are <laughs> we. Yeah. But uh, they could be quite quiet and stoic about Particularly about emotions. But you know what I learned the most is that friendship is the core part of any marriage. Yes,
2: exactly. Yeah.
1: And if you don't have friendship, then it's going to be very difficult to make it through 71 years. <laughs> or more or less.
4: <laughs> As they got into their 90s, Stanley and Elaine's health began to decline. A mix of heart problems and old age. Last year, within a couple months of each other, they were both put on hospice care. Stanley was 99, Elaine, 93. So the quality of their life had really diminished.
3: And Daddy, he he just loved being outside. He, you know, Mm -hmm. he gardened into his 90s. He would toot around on his tractor. He felt so proud that he kept the farm in good shape. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't do that anymore. So he would sit in his chair and look out the window and see all the things that he couldn't take care of, that Mm -hmm. he couldn't do anymore.
2: They they always said they didn't want to linger.
3: Yeah. My mother was saying... um, That they wanted to be able to go when they wanted to go, and that they were ready to
4: go. On August 30th, 2022, a Tuesday, the family gathered together in the farmhouse. Elaine had coffee in the kitchen. Later, Stanley joined her, read the funnies in the paper. Then Elaine got hungry. They weren't supposed to eat, so she let the girls know, it's time.
1: We each took turns talking to them and saying whatever we needed to say for closure but most of the closure was really joyful and loving Mm -hmm. and um, memories and jokes and it was it was was really laughter there was a lot of laughter
3: yeah sharing experiences one of the things one of the things I love that Donna said was um, she said we forgive you for the mistakes you made as parents (laughs) and we hope that you forgive us for the mistakes that we made (laughs) as your children and they did
4: Stanley and Elaine were sitting next to each other in their recliners. They each drank a little apple juice mixed with a lethal dose of drugs prescribed by a doctor. The family sang and held their hands. Then, Stanley and Elaine Fitch died in the same way they lived, together.
1: My father was born in that farmhouse. He was born he, in the room. In the room where he died. In the, yeah. It was the next room over there. But he was always in that farmhouse. And... Um, And they'd always been in the same bed, and we'd spend nights there. We could hear them talking. They were, of course, deaf, so they were talking quite loudly, but, you know, I love you. I love you, too. You know, it was very... You know, they had each other to the end, and I think that was also what they really wanted was to have each other to the end. Yeah. And that's what we wanted for them. And our gift to them...
2: It was so that they could stay in their home. And then their gift to us was sharing the ending with us, but also giving us this shared experience. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a gift, that, that we have this for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm.
3: They chose the, the time, and they chose to go together.
0: You're listening to Brave Little State, Vermont Public's listener-powered journalism project. I'm Josh Crane. Here on the show, we answer your questions about Vermont, our region, and its people, because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today, Michaela Lefrac answers a question about medical aid in dying. That's when a physician legally prescribes a medication that a patient uses to bring about their own death. Michaela explores how the process works in Vermont and shares stories from the people who support Vermonters in their final days.
5: Death is a part of life, and we want to make it as good as it can be for people.
0: We have support from Vermont Public sustaining members. Welcome.
5: Thanks to VEDA for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, VEDA has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com.
4: Okay, it's time to talk about death. Specifically, medical aid in dying. It's a process that's only legal in some states. 10 of them, to be exact, in Washington, D.C. Vermont legalized it a decade ago. Around that time, there was a lot of debate about it, but that debate's quieted down. That silence is part of what prompted Charlie Bastard of Heartland to submit a question to Brave Little State. Why did this topic interest you?
6: Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess it is a little morbid. Um, for the record, I'm not terminally ill or sick. And I'm not really obsessed with death or anything like that.
4: Yes, death can be terrible and heartbreaking. But it's coming for all of us, after all. And if we can prepare for it, shouldn't we?
6: I had this question swirling around in my mind for, uh, for some time. And so one day I just figured, oh, what the hell? I'll ask. And the rest is history.
4: Charlie's the first person I talked to for this story, and I hear something from him that I'll go on to hear from every person in my reporting. Charlie has lost someone he loves, and that loss changed the way he thinks about death. For Charlie, it was a friend who died of ALS.
6: A very undignified, slow way to watch a friend uh, go out. I don't know whether he would have availed himself of that law or not. So those were all the kind of uh, things that are in my mind when I ask a question like that. And I wonder, sitting here healthy and uh, happy, if I were put into a position, would I actually have the braveness, the guts to go through with something like that?
4: That's Charlie's question to Brave Little State.
6: My question is about medical aid in dying. How many Vermonters use this option each year, and how does the medical establishment view it?
4: You've probably heard lots of different words and phrases for this concept of taking legally prescribed medication in order to die. These days, it's most often referred to as medical aid in dying. In Vermont, some people just call it Act 39. That's the name of the legislation that ultimately turned into law. You might have also heard the term death with dignity. Advocates often use that one. People who don't support it often call it assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide. Euthanasia also comes up. That's a term that's more often used, again, by people who don't support the idea. It's not so complicated,
7: but there's lots about medical aid in dying and Act 39. And I use those two terms interchangeably.
4: Tony Cading is a retired nurse who volunteers for a helpline, answering questions about medical aid in dying. The helpline is run by Patient Choices Vermont, the main advocacy group that worked to get Act 39 passed. Tony offered to talk me through some of their more frequently asked questions.
7: We used to get a lot of calls that were, "Why isn't this suicide? Aren't you aren't you promoting suicide?" And I think over time in my experience, With the calls, they have become much more informed, much more nuanced. They come with a basic level of of knowledge so that the questions are more sophisticated.
4: These days, she says she gets lots of questions like this
7: How do I move to Vermont? (laughs) What's the residency period for living in Vermont?
4: The residency requirement is one of the many strict rules within Act 39. To qualify, you have to be at least 18 years old. And you have to have a terminal illness, meaning a doctor's determined that you have six months or less to live. You have to be able to make an informed and voluntary request and be able to self-administer the medication. You also have to be a Vermont resident, which is the part that lots of people ask Tony about.
7: I guess the first answer is, if a person wants to move to Vermont to use this law, we really discourage that. It's huh. it's not the way the law was intended to work. and um, And even if residency was established, it's pretty hard to find a doctor who is willing to accept a new patient solely for the reason of hastening their death.
4: There's also a strict process for getting the prescription. You have to make two verbal requests to a doctor at least 15 days apart. You have to make a written request in front of two witnesses. Then a second doctor has to confirm that you qualify. It's a lot to navigate. Tony tells me about what it's like for her to talk to people who are trying to come to terms with their own mortality and at the same time manage the ins and outs of this law. It seems so hard. So I ask a question that's been on my mind throughout my reporting. How do you deal with all this heaviness? She tells me gently that actually I have it all wrong. You know, I don't approach it like that. I remember that when I
7: was working with oncology patients and these were the sickest of the oncology patients, people would say, oh, how can you stand that? Oh, isn't that just terribly depressing? Oh, my gosh. And my... Response then is pretty much what it is now. These are the most alive people I ever deal with. They understand where the importance of life. They understand the risk of losing it. They are just the most real people with the most real concerns. And if I can help that, I'm so happy to do that. And I come away from, with those conversations, maybe teary, but oh my gosh, so grateful for my own life and what I have. So it's hardly ever a downer for me. It makes me grateful.
4: Question asker Charlie wants to know how many Vermonters have used medical aid in dying since it passed. According to the Vermont Department of Health, only one person used it in the law's first year, 2013. The next year, five. The year after that, 16. Fast forward to last year, 40 people used it. In total, 172 people have used Vermont's medical aid in dying law to hasten their death. The state also keeps track of the diagnoses of the people who used it. As of 2021, more than three-quarters of them had cancer, just over 10% had ALS, and about 5% had neurodegenerative conditions. So 172 people total. It's a relatively small number compared to other states. For example, more people than that used medical aid in dying in Oregon in 2021 alone. But that number, 172, still represents a lot of individual people, each with their own full life and story. And rather remarkably, there's one Vermonter who's met dozens of them. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, Steve. This is Michaela LaFrac. I've been so curious to ask you so many questions. Okay, (laughs) go for it. Steve Hawkberg runs Smilin' Steve Pharmacy. It's a family business. He works with his wife, sons, daughter-in-law, grandkids. Its Rutland location is the only pharmacy in the state that fills prescriptions for the medical aid and dying medication. Steve says he hand delivers almost all of them.
8: I've got one tomorrow. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah.
4: How far are you driving to deliver it?
8: Tomorrow? About an hour. Okay. But I'll go anywhere in the state. Yeah. You know, we're central, so I could be anywhere within two to two and a half hours in either direction. I don't mind the drive.
4: Making house calls allows Steve to answer people's questions about how to administer the drugs. I ask him to talk me through it.
8: It's a two-step process, but it involves three medications.
4: Okay.
8: Um, the patient um, starts with some tablets, which help with nausea and vomiting, and one that helps swallow it, because you have to be able to obviously drink about three ounces of liquid that's kind of chalky. Each one has to wait about 20 minutes, and then they have this powder, which they're going to mix with apple juice, about three ounces of apple juice, swirl it all around, and then it has to go down within a minute or two. Within two, three, four minutes, you're going to be totally asleep, totally unconscious, and that would be the last thing you ever remember, that you will now have the peace you're looking for.
4: Every Vermonter, it seems, who spends time in this space Doctors, nurses, hospice workers, patients, their families, they all know Steve. He delivered the prescriptions to Stanley and Elaine Fitch.
8: That was the first time ever I had two people in the same household. Wow. It was a great, oh my God, it was just, they were just super people. Oh, yeah.
4: He didn't tell me their names or anything, but the Fitch sisters confirmed he was talking about them. And like with almost everyone I talked to for this story, there's loss in Steve's heart, too.
8: My mom died when I was 17, and I saw her suffer for months and months and months um, and went through all the stages of cancer. And, and it's so cruel, and it's so hard on the patient, but it's also extremely difficult on the family.
4: In a way, Steve's mom is with him in the car every time he drives to deliver the medication. She's the reason he's a pharmacist.
8: I believe that that was my mother's suggestion. I always liked math and science, and she goes, Oh, about pharmacy. Well, oh, that sounds good. You know, so I got involved. Uh, Unfortunately, she didn't live long enough to see me start college. I basically died three days after starting college. But um, I just loved doing it. I said, this is what I'm going to do.
4: Steve's been a pharmacist now for almost 50 years. Steve has a couple of guesses as to why he's the only pharmacist that fills these prescriptions. For one, you have to be what's called a compounding pharmacy to prepare these medications. Pharmacists at compounding pharmacies have special expertise to mix ingredients to make customized medications. Big national chains like CVS and Walgreens don't run compounding pharmacies here in Vermont. Then there's the threat of legal action. Act 39 has always extended legal immunity to prescribing doctors. But nurses and pharmacists weren't sure they'd get those same protections if, for example, someone's family member sued them. Then last year, legislators passed an update to the law, making it clear that all licensed healthcare workers involved in the process, including pharmacists, would be granted immunity. The update also allows patients to request the medication in a telehealth appointment instead of in person. So far, that update hasn't led to more compounding pharmacies in Vermont. They're still a complicated type of business to run. There are also some other changes underfoot. Remember that residency requirement? There's a push to loosen it. I just want to make sure you're
1: aware that um, there's a lawsuit that is pending that challenges the requirement in Act 39 that, um, that the patient be a Vermont
4: resident. Betsy Walkerman runs Patient Choices Vermont, the main advocacy organization for Act 39. I'd heard of this lawsuit before. The patient at the center of it and her doctor came on the show I co-host, Vermont Edition, a couple months back. The patient lives in Connecticut and has terminal cancer. She wants to come to Vermont to use Act 39.
3: I'd like to choose how my final days are going to look. And that's why I am seeking out this change in Vermont's residency requirements.
4: Patient Choices Vermont isn't involved directly in this lawsuit, but Betsy Walkerman is watching it closely. Medical aid in dying is one of the only medical procedures that's restricted based on what state you live in. The other big one abortion. The main difference there is that you don't have to be a legal resident of a state to travel there to get an abortion.
1: Personally, for me, the important thing is the broader implication of bodily autonomy and people being able to decide about their own medical care.
4: And Vermont isn't the only state taking a close look at how its medical aid in dying laws work. After a similar lawsuit last year, Oregon is no longer enforcing its residency requirement.
1: So right now we're just watching the lawsuit and interested to see whether Uh, Vermont can take the same step.
4: Betsy tells me medical aid and dying laws look different in other states and countries. In Canada, for example, it's legal nationwide. Around 10,000 people used it there in 2021. And in Canada, you can qualify even if you have more than six months to live. People with certain chronic or longer-term illnesses, like Alzheimer's, are eligible. Some Vermonters with Alzheimer's think they should have access to medical aid and dying too. It's a topic of debate, both in Canada and the US.
0: When we come back, the second half of Charlie's winning question How does the medical establishment feel about all of this? That's coming up next.
4: Medical aid in dying was a controversial idea when it was first introduced in Vermont. For the most part, the debates quieted down since it became legal in 2013. In part, that's because there really haven't been any instances of the law being abused that we know about. But it's still a topic that doctors have mixed feelings on. To learn more, I head over to Dr. Zale Berry's house. She's a retired physician living in Burlington. Hello. Hi. How are you? Very cool to meet you. Oh, you as well. Thank you for having me. Dr. Barry specializes in end-of-life care. She worked with AIDS patients in San Francisco in the 80s, then moved to Washington D.C. in the 90s, before eventually moving to Vermont. When she was in D.C., there was a lot of open debate about what was then called euthanasia, spurred by the case of Dr. Jack Kevorkian. He was a doctor in Michigan who is said to have assisted more than 130 people in ending their lives.
5: He was a hero to some, but to many, he was the death-obsessed doctor who helped patients end their lives
1: instead of helping them to live.
5: People were really divided. There were people who were really for
4: this and really against this. A newspaper reporter asked Dr. Barry for her thoughts.
5: And I said to the person who was interviewing me, you know, it's... It, it takes a lot of skill to manage the patients, the manage the symptoms of somebody at the end of life, and it takes no skill to write a prescription for Secanol, which was a barbiturate, and um, and I was really worried that that's what would happen is people would see somebody, oh my gosh, you're suffering here, here, here's a script, yeah. um, so I was really, you know, worried about that, and, and that, so that was, that
4: was doctors thing. weren't being trained well to manage pain. That's what she wanted the focus of -of end-of-life care to be.
5: My fear was that doctors who didn't know any better would prescribe lethal medication instead of
4: getting people the help they needed. Then, then, Dr. Berry starts telling me about some of the patients she was working with at the time. The one she remembers most vividly, the one at the center of her story, is Ginger.
5: She was 38 years old and diagnosed with a rare form of, of stomach cancer that usually affects, you know, Old men in their 70s who drink and smoke too much. And it was just bizarre that this healthy 38 year old woman had, had been diagnosed with that disease. And I, I helped break that news to her family. Uh, I was c- rotating through the cancer clinic, and um, I, so I, I did that, and then uh, she started her chemotherapy.
4: Dr. Barry didn't hear from Ginger for a while. Then she got a call. The chemo wasn't working, so Ginger decided to stop treatment. She asked, Doctor Barry, could you be my doctor for my end of life care?
5: I said, "What what happened to your oncologist?" And she said, "Oh, he told me to come back when I wanted more chemo." I mean, this woman with this life-threatening disease had been abandoned by her physician, and it was just appalling to me. Um, so I said, "Of course, I'll be your doctor." And I had so I felt like this woman took me by the hand and showed me how to do. What she needed me to do. And it was incredible. I remember the day she came to me with paperwork and she said, um, I'd like to sign up with hospice.
4: Uh, would you sign the paperwork for that? Ginger got into hospice. And soon after that, she died from her cancer. She didn't use medical aid in dying. This was the 90s, it wasn't legal. But the experience of treating Ginger and listening closely to her needs, well, that changed Dr. Barry. You know,
5: when I teach, I tell stories, and I tell patients' stories, and I almost feel like these people sort of live in me, like Ginger. I mean, I feel so much love for her, you know, in terms of, I feel like she gave me the career that I have.
4: Dr. Barry went on to work for the University of Vermont as a palliative care doctor and an educator. She also became a staunch supporter of medical aid in dying when it became legal in Vermont. As long as she was sure her patients weren't asking her for it because their pain was being ignored. Do you remember the first time that a patient came to you and asked for a prescription or asked for information about
5: it? Well, um, you know, I I literally have had hundreds of people ask me to kill them. I'm not kidding you. I mean, a lot. And and I say, well, well, gosh, you know, you seem to be in a lot of pain. How about how about if we get your pain under control and then we talk about it then? And. You know, I go back the next day and say, and they're they're comfortable, and 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 yesterday you were interested in ending your life, and they say, oh no no no, I'm fine.
4: If they still really wanted to move forward and learn about their options, Barry said, yes, she'll help. She's prescribed the medication many many times, and whenever she had a patient who passed away in the way they wanted, Dr. Barry would think about Ginger. I'm
5: I'm in my 60s, and and certainly people who were trained up to the time I was trained. You know, death was a was failure. Yeah. You know, um, after Ginger died, I talked to my friend uh, I said, you know, I Ginger died last night and I, I know I should feel bad because she died. And of course I feel bad, but but I feel really good about what I was able to do for her. <laughs> and, you know, feeling good when somebody died was I was that was total anathema to medical training. I I, I hope. And I, th- I think people trained more recently did not get the message that death is failure. Death is a part of life. And, um, it, you know, we want to make it as good as it can be for people.
4: One of the things Dr. Barry tries to do now that she's retired is talk to other doctors about becoming prescribers for Act 39. But that's a complicated choice for a lot of physicians even if they support the concept. This conversation happens a lot in the world of hospice care. Hospice, if you're not familiar, is a special type of care for people with incurable illness. Doctors and nurses who work in hospice help dying patients live as fully and comfortably as possible. There are hospice centers, but patients can also receive hospice care at home. That's what Stanley and Elaine Fitch did. The hospice workers I spoke to were all deeply passionate about their work and their patients. But they said there's still this stigma about hospice that they're constantly coming up against.
9: People have been sort of confused about the role of hospice care in hastening or not hastening a person's mm-hmm. death for a long
4: time. So, it keeps Dr. Nancy different. Long is the medical director of the University of Vermont Health Network's Home Health and Hospice. She says there is this fear out there that hospice is somehow going to make you die faster. That's why she chooses not to prescribe for medical aid in dying. I'm not in the role of a
9: prescriber. You know, as somebody who's practiced in hospice care for over 20 years and watched the evolution of this across the country and sort of had to correct the misunderstanding so many times in my life of what we actually do and that our intent is never to hasten someone's death. I I like there to be a clear
4: line about what my role is. The University of Vermont doesn't allow its doctors to prescribe for medical aid in dying if they know the patient is going to use it at a UVM facility like the hospice center in Colchester where Dr. Long works. The
9: way I would describe the role of UVM home health and hospice is that we're Engaged, neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, we're neutral, but we're engaged. In in other words, we will um, help a person help connect a person with the resources they need to do it. As as I said, we care for people regardless of what their choices are around
4: this. Our question asker, Charlie, wanted to know how the medical establishment feels about Vermont's medical aid and dying law. It seems like the answer to that question is still actively evolving. Just ask Dr. Tim Leahy, who heads up UVM Medical Center's Clinical Ethics Program.
2: I've absolutely seen that evolution. I think it's much more prevalent now for physicians sort of want to know what the, what the patient's goals are. If the patient, for instance, wants quality of life over quantity of life, we view that as, as our duty and privilege to be able to help them achieve those goals. And, and I do think that has been a cultural shift over the years.
4: It's not just doctors and nurses who are reevaluating how they approach the idea of death. Act 39 has spurred people across the state to talk more openly about death and dying, regardless of whether they support the law or not.
3: The three of us were doing that, and then you know, we started to get, to get help.
4: My parents were so people like the Fitch sisters who helped their parents navigate medical aid and dying. Well, they're the role models for that conversation. The sisters told me supporting both their parents through the process of dying was incredibly hard. They basically put their lives on hold for months, but they got through it because they knew they were doing what their parents wanted, and because they had each other.
3: Yeah, and then we were holding their hands when they. Mm drifted off. Mm-hmm.
1: And it was very peaceful. It was mm-hmm. like falling asleep. Yeah. It was very, very graceful. Yeah, we, we read
3: some poems to them. We mm-hmm. sang to them.
2: Mm-hmm. And then after their death, the community completely wrapped their arms around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had an open house at their, at their farmhouse. And we had my mother's paintings up. We had poems my father had written. He has my various... mother's wall of wisdom. <laughs> oh, she'd write these little sayings down on pieces of paper, and I started pasting them up on the wall, and there's a lot of them. And you know, some were like quotes from literature, like Dostoevsky,
3: or a poem that she liked, but some were some that she wrote herself. <laughs> some were about weight
1: loss. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs>
2: and my son is having a Christmas party uh, this weekend, and he's inviting his generation and our generation <laughs> And my parents will be on the mantle. Mm. And they would just love knowing that there's a party there. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Continues. it continues. It continues. I'd like to read something that one of our hospice nurses sent to us. You don't yes. have to include it, but it's... Um, she says, Thank you so much for your note. I learned so much from you, from your parents, and you all. Thank you for all of the reminders you allowed us to see of the power of love family devotion and loyalty.
4: I don't know what happens to people after they die. But I do know that Stanley and Elaine's memory lives on. In their family their community in Calais, and now in all of us. The memory is of how they lived and how they died together.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Charlie Bastard for the great question. To see photos of the Fitch sisters and their parents, Stanley and Elaine, check out our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit your own question about Vermont, sign up for the BLS newsletter, and check out our episode archive. Find us on Instagram and Reddit at BravestateVT. Michaela LaFrac reported this episode. I produced it and did the mix and sound design. Editing and additional help from the rest of the BLS team, Angela Evansy, Myra Flynn, and Mae Naguski. Music by Blue Dot Sessions Special thanks to Jana Clough, Erica Heilman Tim Leahy, Linda Bluestein, and Chelsea Schelfunt Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public We have support from our station's sustaining members. If you liked what you heard today, head to bravelittlestate.org donate or just tell your friends to listen I'm Josh Crane We'll be back soon with more People Powered Vermont Journalism Until then.
9: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source
6: of the news stories filling your feed. Find MPR through line wherever you get your podcasts.